Our Father, would you please, by your Holy Spirit, through your word today, aim a blow at our propensity to worship ourselves and instead help us to embrace your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation that he offers. And Lord, fire us up that we might not be able to keep this amazing grace to ourselves. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, imagine a busy Friday afternoon in the heart of the city, maybe at the top of the Narborough Road, and uh, some of you don't need to imagine it because you live that uh, on a weekly basis. And uh, the traffic has been building and building, and soon there's utter gridlock in the streets. Uh, for five minutes, you haven't moved, and uh, horns around you are blaring. The taxi drivers are, are glaring. Uh, someone somewhere is swearing. It, it's, it's all going off in the city. And you're a tired commuter, and you just, you just want to get home and start the weekend. That's all you're interested in. And folk are raging, but somehow, because it happens every week, you're resigned uh, at the same time. But then suddenly, out of the shadows, steps a young man. Um, he walks into the middle of the road. Uh, he's wearing everyday clothes, and he starts directing the traffic. And uh, it's a little bit weird, but uh, people kind of start doing what he's indicating. And, and slowly but surely, the, the blockage starts to, to clear. And the traffic starts to flow again. And then uh, the young man just melts back into uh, the crowd just before the police arrive. And they're not very happy because they, they've been upstaged because kind of directing the traffic is their job. And telling people what to do and where to go is, is their job. And so what they want to know when they finally catch up with this young man is, who do you think you are? <laughs> who gave you the right to be directing the traffic? That's what we do. And if you can imagine something like that, then you're pretty close to the tone and the nature of what's going on in today's Bible reading, our part of Mark's Gospel. You see, you've got these religious police, if you like, these powers that be, and they've been tracking the comings and goings of a young man, Jesus. His healings, his teachings, the crowds that have been gathering around him. And they see him, and they're right, as a threat to their authority and their leadership uh, in the nation. And they want, they want rid of him. They've wanted rid of him for most of the account of his life so far. In fact, they've been joining unholy alliances of people who usually hate each other with the sole purpose of, of silencing and getting rid of this problem, Jesus. Uh, Jesus is fully aware of this, of course. If you've been with us, you'll remember that week after week we've seen him predict that these religious authorities will condemn him. They will hand him over to suffer and, and die. And this is something that Jesus has been very open about with his disciples and the crowds have been listening in. And so far in chapter 11, as we saw last week, he's ridden into his city, Jerusalem, as its rightful king. He's viewed the goings-on in the temple. He's judged it because those fruits that we heard about that God was seeking in the Old Testament, in that reading from Isaiah of, of justice and righteousness, well, they, they're, they're no longer to be seen in the whole of the edifice of worship that goes on in the nation. And Jesus hasn't just turned the tables on the buyers and the sellers of the temple tack, you know, the sort of people that sell you bits of the 
Berlin Wall, so that it would probably be the Great Wall of China by the time uh, you put them all together. The whole rotten edifice, he's turned the tables on the lot of it. And the false shepherds who care more for their own authority want to be honoured by the people rather than leading the people to honour the Lord. That's what's going on here. They won't heed the king's call to repent and believe the gospel. They won't respect Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Indeed, uh, Jesus' Jerusalem entrance only serves to harden them further. Uh, if you've got your Bible open on page 1016, you might want to look at it. Uh, we picked up on it briefly last week, chapter 11 and verse 18, just so that we can see what's going on. Chapter 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the teacher of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They want to find a way of stopping Jesus in his tracks. He seems to be directing the traffic, they just want to mow him down. And they want their position bolstered, and they want the status quo nailed down. And to do that, they're going to have to nail Jesus. They're going to have to nail Jesus. Who do you think you are, young man? Who gave you the right, the authority? And that's our first heading as we just briefly survey this passage together. Uh, the heading of Jesus' authority. Do you see what's going on? Verse 27, they arrived again in Jerusalem. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus isn't fooled by this. He knows it's a trap. If he says again that he's the Messiah, the Christ, they'll take him straight to Pilate as an enemy of the Roman regime and he'll do away with Jesus for them. If he says anything less, if he says something that plays down or diminishes his role, then the crowd won't be so keen on him and then they can move in and do the job uh, themselves. It's a wicked backhand slice of a question. It's landed just inside Jesus' baseline. But Jesus won't be called on the hop, verse 29. He replies, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And here's his question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me, he said. Boom. They're at the net. They're waiting for an easy volley to sort of put Jesus away for good. But he wrongfoots them. He turns defence into attack. He crashes it back over the net with interest. And we know, don't we, that uh, from early on in Mark's Gospel that John had been preaching a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and that he's been speaking and pointing to Jesus in whom this, this forgiveness would, would come, the one who is the, the Christ, the Messiah. And so, so John, uh, in his ministry, is defined by, by Jesus and, and Jesus continues uh, to refer back and say, I'm, I've come to do what John said. So, so basically, if they, they deny John, if they say John is an imposter, then they're saying Jesus is an imposter and vice versa. It's wonderful what Jesus does. Uh, uh, they've been put right in a quandary, and I love the way, uh, except it's horrible as well, in verse 31, they, they kind of have to, you know, they have to have that sort of awkward conversation amongst themselves. They kind of know what the answer is, but they're having to find a way not to implicate themselves. <laughs> and then so He's, he's kind of 
I, I can't, but Richard plays tennis, I can't play tennis. But you imagine that Jesus has kind of fizzed a forehand drive back down, uh, and all they can do is just kind of block a, a loopy one right up into the air. Uh, verse 33, we don't know. It's pathetic, isn't it, really? Uh, Jesus isn't having any of that, is he? Verse 33, he understands that what they're really saying is, we won't tell you. Because they know. They know that their position as the authoritative voices in Israel, the leaders of the people, the shepherds, has been usurped by him, by God's Son and eternal King. And actually, it's not only that, is it? It's, it's even subject to the whim, verse 32, of the crowd. So that's Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. They know it. They don't want to admit it. They're bent on rejecting it. And so he tells them a parable, which gives us our second sort of heading as we survey this, this, this part of God's word, his inheritance. This parable is so clear. You know, I know that last week some of the text is, is complex and difficult. This is clear, isn't it? It's all clear, but this is particularly easy to understand, this parable. In fact, so easy that Jesus doesn't give an explanation. There's no taking the disciples back into the house to sort of say, well, you know, you're a bit slow, this is what it really means. Everybody who hears this parable understands it on a basic level, all right? And I'm sure that as Jesus uh, speaks this parable, he's got that, that text in Isaiah 5 uh, in mind. Because if you uh, think about it, you see in verse 1, a man planted a vineyard, he put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built uh, a watchtower. So you've got the, the man, God, being pictured here by Jesus, and his and the vineyard. It, it, that's a word that's used a lot in the Old Testament for the people of God, for Israel, for, for, for God's people. So you've got God and his people being pictured here, uh, planting uh, a people. Uh, and he wants, the, he's the owner, God is, the, is like the owner, the man who, who has the vineyard. He uh, has a right to the yield. He wants good fruit. Will he find justice and righteousness from his people. Second half of verse uh, 1, some farmers, and that represents the religious leaders uh, of old Israel. In fact, they know that because if you scoop to the end of the parable in verse 12, it says they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. This is the, 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 these, these are the leaders that, that should, be, should be encouraging as they, as they hold out God's word as under-shepherds uh, the, 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 the kind of uh, thing that, that God wants from his people. And yet, what is the report card on the old Israel? Well, uh, here it is, verses 2 to 5. Have a look at verse 2. At harvest time, uh, the man sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And then there's a survey, isn't there, of beating and killing that goes on. And here, Jesus is equating the servants in the parable as a picture of the prophets that came bringing the word of God, warning the people, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, righteousness, justice. Where is it? The shepherds aren't demanding it. You're not producing it. You've turned away. And what is the litany of stories in the Old Testament about prophets who brought the word but were rejected, often derided, beaten, even killed for bringing the word of God back to the heart 
of the nation. And so the question remains, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He would have every right, would he not, to sort of just end the whole thing right there, destroying the vineyard. But no, verse 6, here's a key verse. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Amazing patience. Jesus is picturing himself, isn't he? It's plain to see, isn't it? You don't need a theology degree to work out that Jesus here is talking about himself. The prophets have all come and gone to the various stages of ill treatment. This patient, merciful God, rather than destroying the whole project, sends as a last resort, but as his purposed plan, his own beloved son. There's the one contrast here, isn't there, between the owner and God the Father. God the Father knew all along that the wicked tenants would not respect his son. It just heightens our shock, doesn't it, at what follows. Verse 7, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. If the son is Jesus, what event in Jesus' life is this picturing? You tell me. The cross, isn't it? It's his cross. The son is murdered. Jesus is confronting these religious leaders with the enormity of what they are planning, with the enormity of what they are about to do. And just note, before we start to apply these words, this is not a miscalculation. This is not an honest mistake by the authorities in Jerusalem. Do you see that? They said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They don't, they don't kill the son because they don't know who he is. They kill him precisely because of who he is. To, to, to everything belongs... To, to, to Jesus belongs everything. He is the creator of the world. He's the inheritor of everything. They thought they could have the temple without God. They thought they could have worship of themselves rather than worship of God. They thought they could have glory for themselves rather than glory to God. And that only ever ends badly. Verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And here uh, we have uh, the picture of God's judgment on old Israel, on this self-worshipping, self-righteous rabble that won't produce or lead the people to produce the justice and righteousness and repentance that is God's due, that won't honour his son. But you know, amazingly, that same death same killing of the Son of God, of the heir. It's through him that salvation comes to the people of God. Did you notice it's not just that Christians, the new people of God, will rent the vineyard. Verse 9, they'll get given the vineyard so that Jesus' lot is our lot. And notice then, that means that the 
salvation that is available in the gospel through repentance and faith will go out to every nation. It won't any longer be that Israel has this specific prophetic role in the world. All from every nation who come through faith in Christ into the kingdom, into the vineyard, will receive Jesus, receive salvation. One last thing to note before we apply these words right into us, into our time. We've seen Jesus' authority. He comes to his city. He comes to the temple as God's son and eternal king. He ends the idolatrous worship of old Israel. And we've seen his inheritance, the fruit of the Father's sending of his son and his sacrificial death on the cross is the judgment of those who reject him, but the bringing in. You are the inheritance of Jesus if you're his by faith. And then finally, Jesus concludes the parable against them. Verse 10. He says, you should have known, folks. He said, haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, or footnote, the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. That Psalm 118, the psalm the pilgrims had sung on the way up to Jerusalem, welcoming the Messiah, is indeed the rejected one, and yet the one who will be made the most important stone in all the universe. You know, if these religious leaders should have learned anything, it's that even if they were to kill Jesus as they planned, they'll not do away with God's authority. They won't even do away with him because he'll rise victoriously. And it's marvellous in our eyes. He is now the cornerstone, the new temple, the one, the only one, through whom all, you, your family and friends, can come and be saved. Do you see how Jesus has comprehensively turned the tables, comprehensively outplayed his opponents, the guy they accused of taking over their role in directing the traffic of a Friday night is in complete control of their eternal destiny. Ten minutes to apply these things right down to our hearts. I tried to group these things together, but in the end I thought, you know, there'll be someone here for whom each of these things will be, or one of these things at least, will be application on your heart from this parable. So there's a list of things and all I can really do is list them. The first one, recognize your self-worship. Verse 7, this is the heir, come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. We know who God is just as much as they did. We know who Jesus is just as much as they did. He rightfully demands the fruit of our lives, our very selves. We're to worship our creator, not his creatures. Will we recognize that our hearts are not wired to do that by themselves? I am a sinner that suppresses the truth. I would rather kill God to have my way than worship him as creator. That is my heart without Jesus. That is the natural condition of the hearts of our families and friends as we seek to pray for them and invite them 
to mission events as we seek to speak to them and get alongside them every day. It, it struck me that there's one thing that this passage will not allow us, any of us who've heard this this morning, ever to think or say again. And it's this, that somehow humanity is inherently good. If you think that somehow human beings are inherently good, I would challenge you that you've just not been listening this morning. J.C. Ryle uh, was a former bishop of Liverpool in the days when bishops used to get things right more often than not, or he did. Men never saw God face to face. But once when Jesus became a man, he said, and lived on earth, they saw him, holy, undefiled, going about doing good. Yet they wouldn't have him. They rebelled against him, and at last they killed him. Let's dismiss from our minds that there's an innate good in our hearts. Let's put away the common notion that seeing and knowing what is good is enough to make us a Christian. If you believe the prayer that we said together at the beginning of the service, Richard explained it to us, you know it just simply isn't the case that there is a, any vestige of good innate in our hearts as human beings. Our hearts are shown off here, aren't they, in the leaders of God's people in Jesus' day. Listen, either the Son gets all the glory all the worship, or we do. You know it's true. We've overreached ourselves. And that means that, actually, to be judged would be our just deserts. For the owner of the vineyard, as it were, for God just to crush us would be exactly what each one of us deserves. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, friends. We're either bowing to his authority or we're crushed by it. We either repent and believe the gospel and in him, the new temple, find salvation and forgiveness and freedom or if we persist in rejecting the son, we will find ourselves rejected by him on the day he comes looking for the fruit of justice and righteousness that it is due. And Jesus invites us in this question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? And we're meant to be thinking, he will rightly do away with them. And we're invited by Jesus to say, that is reasonable, that is right, that is just. But God be praised, so many of us, so many of us here this morning have discovered that the gospel of his son really is good news. Because for sinners, self-worshippers, who deserve to be done away with, Will you this morning give thanks for grace? For God's grace and mercy in Christ. It's sobering, isn't it, to think that God had to give me the heart to love me. That I can't even repent unless he gives it to me as a gift. I can't believe in him unless the faith with which I believe in him is given to me by God. I would only ever have rejected and despised Jesus and put him to death in my heart. So as Ryle continued that quote, let's dismiss from our minds that there's an innate good in our hearts, let's put that away, and then he says, nothing but the Spirit of God can change the heart. We must be born again. And I say this morning, and I know that many of you will echo this, most of you will echo this this morning, thank you God that even though I put your son on the cross, that I killed him, your one and only son, that through him, by your sheer grace and mercy, through your Holy Spirit, rather than killing me as I deserved, 
eternally. You've given me new birth, new hope, full salvation, eternal life. I deserve to be counted with them over there, the old Israel. I deserve to be crushed, thrown out. But you crushed and threw out your son from the vineyard, on the cross, in my place, so that I could only ever be, verse 9, one of those others that you've given the vineyard to in my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Will you join with me this morning in saying, thank you, Father, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Holy Spirit, for what you've done for me. It's too good to keep for ourselves. Will you warn others of the judgment by the Son and pray them. Do you believe that the people you love actually hate Jesus? And they're on a crash course for judgment and hell, Christless eternity. It's why we exist as a church, friends, to call others to repent and believe the gospel, to be saved through Jesus and to be built along with us into living stones in his body, the church of Jesus Christ. That's why we're having our mission weekend next month to keep this purpose that God's given us high on our agenda. Not because that solves it, not because that deals with it and we just put that over there and we've done it, but because it shows us what our, our lives ought to all be about all the time. To warn others with love and pray for them that God would change hearts and change lives and change eternal destinies in Enderby and in our workplaces, in our family homes and beyond. And if we recognize the danger of self-worship, if we truly realize what we really deserve, if we're truly thankful for God's amazing grace and mercy, we'll warn others pleadingly, we'll pray for them persistently, we'll long for them to receive what we, by grace, received from God. We don't want them to be judged, we want them to be saved, we want them to love the Son who loves them, not hate him. But as we do that, don't be surprised when those who reject the Son reject you too. You notice in the parable, it's not just the Son who gets killed, is it? It's some of the servants, the prophets too. So when you invite, you might get a mild pushback. Some of our brothers and sisters around the world are getting rather more than a mild pushback. But we might get a mild pushback. You know, in a world that will happily crucify the Son of God to suit itself and its own desires, will think nothing of causing pain and grief to those who bring his gospel. I think I can cope with inviting someone to a Kaylee and them saying no. I think I can. It shouldn't surprise us. But neither should it deter us to know that this might happen, this pushback, if we love those around us and believe in a sovereign God. Marvel at his victory. Marvel at his victory. The Lord has done this, verse 11, and it is marvellous in our eyes. The antidote to despairing for our family and friends, will they ever believe? And all the knockbacks that we might receive from them is to believe in the sovereign control and victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It points me all over this parable to the glory and power of God. Salvation is the Lord's doing. If folk reject him when we speak or they reject us, its servants, he's got it. He's in control. He orchestrated the whole gospel, didn't he? The, the rejection of his own son. He knew what he was doing then. He knows what he's doing now. 
when we speak. And he gives grace both to repent and to push back on us. He knows what he's doing. And then, pray for godly leadership. I'm so aware as I read this that it's the religious leaders who are, who are portrayed in a very unflattering light here, aren't they? I'm not any better than them by nature. Neither is Richard, neither are our bishops and archbishops, nor is your fellowship group leader. Please pray for us to be godly leaders who do not tell you simply what your itching ears want to hear or those of your family and friends. When, we, when you invite your family and friends, you don't want them basically being told that the way they live is perfectly fine and everything that's going on is perfectly fine and that you know God is just a warm fuzzy feeling. Pray for us that we will teach the truth, refute error, and preach and live a gospel of repentance to the glory of Jesus. And finally, repent a lot. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Turn and trust Jesus now, in an hour's time, later today, in the arguments over who's going to sort out lunch. Forgiveness and freedom come only As you come to the Lord's table, remember, the gospel is not first and foremost a set of propositions to believe, although it is that. Is it first and foremost a glorious person to be embraced? All the Father's passions are stirred by the Son who told us this parable. Let's make much of him as we come to the Lord's table. And maybe one of those applications, just one of them, will be something that you will dwell on in that quiet before you come up and receive the tokens of of his passion. Maybe there's some vestige of self-worship that needs to be nailed to the cross, or to remember that it is nailed to the cross. Maybe there's a lack of, lack of gratitude somewhere for the grace and mercy that he's given you. Maybe there's some sort of thanklessness in your prayer life. Maybe you've been a bit blasé about your family and friends and you've not warned them about the judgment uh, that's coming, not invited them to meet with the Lord. Maybe their knockbacks have caused you to stop doing that. You were doing it, but you've stopped because you've just been so frustrated by their hardness or the pushbacks. Maybe you've forgotten or stopped marvelling at the Lord's sovereign power to save. Whatever it is, come up there. Make much of him in your heart. Turn and trust him to go again as you eat these tokens, the spiritual reminders that his cross and empty tomb have set everything right for you. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Let's be quiet for a moment as Richard comes again to eat.